let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. Today we're recording at the Global CIO Banking Summit in lovely Bagshot. Executives from around the world have come to discuss the future of banking in an already connected world. I'm Jason Bates and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues David Breer and Simon Taylor and we've just got an amazing group of banking execs joining us today. First we've got Mark DeMunk. MD and CIO of International Wealth Management, IT Solutions and Product at Credit Suisse. We've got Paul Cobbin, COO, Technology and Operations at DBS Bank. Ricardo Rolla, EMEA CIO at Itau BBA. And Adrian Samarono, I'm sure I've murdered that name, Global CIO and VP Excellence at Volvo Financial Services. So let's get on with the conversation. We've got uh, an amazing group here today. Uh, we've got Mark DeMunk, who's MD and CIO, International Wealth Management IT Solutions and Products from Credit Suisse. Hey, Mark. Hi, how are you doing? We've got Adrian Samarono. Adrian is the Global CIO and VP of Operational <laughs> Excellence at Volvo. Thank you. Good to be with you here. Uh, we've got Ricardo de Rolla, yeah. CIO EMEA at Itau BBA? Yes, yes, that's me. And finally, we've got uh, Paul Cobbin, COO, Technology and Operations, DBS Bank. Hi, hello. So quite an amazing panel today. Uh, and I guess the, the subject that we've come together to, to ask your collective wisdom on is digital transformation. And I guess we should start with, how do you define digital transformation? Ah, so I think in order to define digital transformation, you have to define what we mean by digital. Um, and there's all different kinds of definitions out there. I mean, we've had a long debate today about it. And um, really, for us at DBS, uh, we think about digital more in terms of actually business models than, than technology. You know, so if you think about it in those terms, it's about how do you get your company, the people in your company, to start thinking in terms of these new digital uh, business models. What about the rest of you guys? We also look from the uh, outside-in perspective, so not the inside-out perspective. And I think there is uh, a lot that we have to basically get to change the mindset, the way that we look at things, applying technologies, for example, being uh, one of our aspirations, but helping our customers actually looking from the outside, understanding the customers and approaching the customer journey is uh, also all about uh, transformation. So we're looking at it from a slightly different angle, is that we want to try and get into the client's ecosystem. So the digital transformation is trying to move and trying to understand what the client's ecosystem is 
and to transform into that space. So that could be anything from, you know, their ecosystem being around the social media side to from the simple websites, which most people already have access to, the mobile sites, through the watches, whichever way you want to go. But uh, on the transformation side, it's that digital transformation we want to get into, into the client's ecosystem versus the clients coming to us. So is there something different about digital than, you know, is it just having an app? Is it having a, a website? Is there more to it? Or is it just like, you know, is it table stakes? Everybody, digital's done. You know, how do, how do you guys feel about that? Is digital done, Paul, maybe? Uh, clearly not, you know. So we've got a, a long way to go. I think there was a stage that digital was about having an app, but I think we're past that. Yeah, maybe that was table stakes at some point. So I think the end game here is really to make banking disappear, make banking in invisible. So in the same way, when you get out of a Uber cab, you don't have to worry about the payment. You know, that's just going to be more and more pandemic as we as we move forward into this age. So banks have really got to think hard about how to actually achieve that. And they cannot achieve that alone, which is a new phenomenon for a lot of banks. You really have to work with partners uh, into uh, a given ecosystem, you know. So the, the example we've been using at DBS is around if you ever if you wanted if your fridge breaks, then wouldn't it be great if there was a bank out there that kind of solved that problem for you completely and worked with fridge repairers and delivery people and or new fridge uh, retailers? And there was a, a situation where that all came together and there was a payment involved somewhere, but we didn't have to worry about it too much. We talk a lot, um, Ricardo, about jobs to be done, like, and, and I think that's it. My, my fridge needs repairing. And actually, um, the bank has become invisible in the fridge needs repairing or I need to buy a house. But at the moment, it's, it's kind of very disjointed. Do, do you think about how you put these journeys together for people more? And, and can banks become invisible? Should they? Yeah, I think that's the great thing about digital is that uh, it brings to the game people that are not in the banking industry and that are using these technologies, these possibilities, these fresh looks and bringing out new experiences because ultimately it's about bringing the, the new experience to, to the users. The banking users are not worried about cybersecurity or uh, legacy systems. That's for the bankers. And that's what I think that uh, this digital transformation is really great about. It brings a fresh new perspective into the game. But can old dogs learn new tricks to, uh, to lean on a metaphor? If the transformation is that deep, if it's not about selling a, a product or slightly changing an interest rate, can an organization that's been around for a few hundred years looking for more effectiveness and more efficiency, building thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, growing legacy systems since the 1970s. Can they really make that turn to be that kind of, of player? Definitely. I think that everybody has a chance to make a turn. Um, they just have to recognize um, what's happening around them, what the transformation is, and accept the change and move forward with it. I mean, just because you have a legacy system, I don't think it stops you at all from moving into the digital transformation. Um, there's many things that have been done today, which actually legacy doesn't prevent you from doing it at all. People keep saying, well, you know, we have to uh, have a completely new banking platform for this. And, uh, you know, we have to get rid of our core legacy architecture. Not necessarily that's true. I mean, legacy has played a role and usually as a core banking platform, it's at the back end, it's hidden and you can build front services for that uh, that take care of that. I think what people need to realize is, I think I agree on the retail space, that'll be completely hidden. 
uh, from a view in the future. I think on the wealth management side, I think that's probably going to be more like life advice, life management rather than wealth. It's not going to be just wealth anymore. This is where, you know, you can take the example of the fridge or kids schools recommendation or, you know, problems you may have to need sorted out, maybe even going as far as, you know, what's the best life insurance, the best doctors. I mean, basically going into life advice and management. That's really going out into the future space now. I think um, on the uh, the wealth management side, the banks play a big role and will continue to play a big role in the products and services that are out there and helping uh, people and clients understand, you know, what they can do for them. So I, I think it's, and yes, everybody can do it. I think it's a case of how fast you move. You know, my personal prediction is that there's going to be two types of banks in the future. The banks who uh, move fast enough and are in control of some of their chosen ecosystems. And then there's the other type of bank who didn't quite make it in time um, and has be- just become a commodity play where they're just playing lowest cost game. Unfortunately for bankers in general, they haven't been used to the lowest cost game. You know, And you know, giving up corner offices and corporate jets and big bonuses is going to be a painful journey for a lot of banks. So I think it's about the pace. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's a, you know, it does sort of bifurcate pretty quickly, doesn't it, in terms of what their players are looking to do. And actually, it's a, it's quite a slippy slope, isn't it? You know, if you want to fall back into that commoditized play, it's a very difficult thing for, you know, traditional banks to get their head around because actually the universal banking model is predicated on cross-sell and upsell. And actually at the point where you're not seeing your customers because you've been commoditized, it's very difficult to kind of move, move up the value chain when you concede that ground. But I guess, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a few times here at the, the CRO Summit was, and actually we, we started the day with this, is, is culture. Uh, how much of a, an inhibitor do you think, because, I, you know, reading between the lines of what you guys are saying, the technology doesn't seem like the major inhibitor. You know, like, like to your point, legacy systems have been used, regulatory uh, restrictions have been used as, a, as kind of almost a defense mechanism of, of not changing at the pace that arguably everybody's capable of doing do we feel that culture is actually the major barrier from you you know from your perspective i'm definitely and yeah if i may i think um, before we embark on that journey right and addressing you know the mindset the culture and the attitude that we look at and it doesn't really matter if it's from you know inside out or outside in i think we have to learn a lot from the other industries as well, right? Because uh, we don't invent that in banking or in financial services. And uh, I'm I'm not talking about, you know, like uh, the fintechs or the new entrants or the startups, right? I'm not talking about the companies which are already, uh, you know, working with data or with digital. And um, I think it is very important to generate that type of attitude by first of all talking you know about what we want to accomplish what we are trying to accomplish on the digital transformation journey is making we're adding value you know for our customers by improving their business if they are successful then we are successful as well so it's not very much uh, a commercial gain rather than you know customer value mm-hmm. and ta- then it reflects back in the organization with how you get, you know, the culture, how you get your employees focusing in the right direction and have, were being customer focused rather than, you know, um, productivity focused. So I guess there's a danger that this can get all very ethereal and abstract because we can talk about culture change, we can talk about an organizational change, but what does it really mean? How do you measure it? How, how do you pick the, the leading indicators for the organizations, for the banks that are going to, to make that transformation versus those that aren't? 
So if you talk about measuring culture, that's quite tough. Um, so I think the, what you think about what you want to achieve by cultural change and looking for other industries. So at DBS, we've kind of aspired to be a 22,000-person startup. So what that really means is how to become more agile across uh, the company. I don't mean software development agile. I mean right across every business and the way we do work. Um, and when we thought about it, which companies should we look to for inspiration? We look, you know, clearly the technology, the big technology companies who, once you know, in the not too distant past, have been startups themselves. So the, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, the Netflix, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and actually we have a phrase at DBS um, that we want to become the the D in Gandalf, where uh, Gandalf stands for Google, Amazon, Netflix, DBS, mm-hmm. Apple, LinkedIn, <laughs> and Facebook. And it's, it's something that initially started off as something we would look, just looked at the technology. We really wanted to copy their technology models, and we still do, and we very much look up to them. But then we realized what each of these companies has in common is that they have, uh, I think with the exception of Apple, have uh, codified their culture. Uh, they've written it down, and you can download it from the internet. Um, so you can have a look at that. And, and we've just, you know, shamelessly copied some of their, their techniques and just so we can see if we can actually influence the behavior of our people. Um, because changing culture, of course, is a 10-year journey, um, so you have to take small steps. But we've, and we have had some successes. But to come back to your question about how to measure it, you really have to think about the outcome you're trying to achieve. You don't have to just blindly copy or, or a culture. You've got to have your outcome in mind. So if you want agility, it's about speeding things up. And that's something you definitely you can measure. I guess all of those companies share something in exploration, in learning as well. They've penetrated or created new markets and new types of product and service. Uh, is that the same for banking? It is, of course, um, but more importantly is the, the way they do that. And, and you look at especially Amazon and, and uh, Netflix, they're just, and Google, in fact, all of them are ruthless about experimentation. This idea, you know, it's not about the hippo, you know, the highest paid person's opinion um, that mm-hmm. counts. It's about, you know, experimenting to learn rather than intellectualization. And that's, again, something you can measure. We So we, you know, we said uh, we measure how many experiments we're doing and we're nowhere close to these guys yet, but it, it just sets a, a bar for us to try and uh, to achieve. But I guess that creates a, a tension, especially in a regulated industry, in financial services, and equally with companies that have brands that they want to protect as being, you know, the thing always works. We don't experiment our customers. It's amazing. So that always in beta methodology approach that you see with the large companies, does that fit well with, with banking? I think it does. I mean, I just want to reiterate on the uh, the agility of it. I think that's a good measure because what I've seen is it's the speed with, with, with which a bank can adapt to change and to the changing environment is the clear measure that's going to be in the future. So if you can't change quick enough with what's going around you, specifically with the fintech companies coming along or being able to mimic what the fintech com- companies are doing, or maybe taking them in on board or working with it as a partnership with fintech companies or other companies alike, um, this is where you'll slow down. So I think uh, at least I'm a big believer in the side that uh, one needs to adapt very quickly. DevOps becomes a clear um, path down that chain and the, the agility across the organization as well, not just IT. I, I think the three KPIs we talk about is speed, uh, efficiency, and uh, customer value. Just, just to summarize that. I think it can be done in, in many ways. It depends from where you start and what you're looking at, but uh, I think that's basically 
you know, in a nutshell. I guess efficiency stands out for me a little because yeah. learning isn't classically efficient. It, you know, there, there are strategic moves that you might make. Let's offshore or create a, some kind of system that strategically will bring us great efficiencies. But arguably, that's not the fastest way to test a new proposition. Mm-hmm. So, and especially with a, with banks that traditionally have looked for cost savings and increasing efficiencies, how does that marry in, in day-to-day life? Let's just remind ourselves that banks have not always looked at efficiency. Uh, when you have lots of money, you don't need to be efficient. <laughs> this is some sort of a, a new trend. But um, it, it goes to the point that uh, banks are traditionally uh, 100 years old institutions with a very strict culture built to gain their customers' trust. And, and trust nowadays is, is not that valued, especially in the younger generations. We, they have no problem sharing their information all around the Internet. So for, for the big banks to change their, their cultures and uh, loosen up, and focus on, on innovation, it's not that easy. That's why fintechs came in and they disrupted everything. They had that embedded in their DNA. The challenge for banks is to get that and to build that on the existing, more strict structure they've already built along all these years. But I guess we've seen innovation labs, innovation veneer, Small, small parts of the organization sent off to some garage or we were hearing this morning funky room with green bean bags and told to innovate in ways that don't connect with the core value proposition or the core products of the bank. In some way, does a bank's natural organizational immune system in some way reject that innovation that's coming along? How do you do that? Everything is changing around us, right? So why are we going digital? For many reasons we go digital, but first, and I'm coming back to the customer, is because there is a shift in a customer expectations. I mean, we we identify like three key drivers, right? In in terms of how we're approaching digital world, why we're making the changes around us, and we can't ignore that. I think that we are catching up in financial services because we are forced to do that from a uh, customer perspective. Second, uh, technologies that are deployed nowadays are pretty, uh, you know, it's fast deployment, right? Uh, third, you know, it's fintechs. Everyone is afraid of fintechs or startups, right? So why we don't collaborate? Why we don't work, you know, better together? Why we have to reinvent the wheel? Because we are afraid of that competition is actually is working together and we have to have that collaboration that will get us, you know, in a better position than we were yesterday. So just to challenge you a little bit on that, right? All right. So, so I, I think you're right and to a certain extent about we are seeing changing customer expectations. But I think it's a mistake to use that as your catalyst. I think you have to be on the front foot. If you're waiting for your customers to demand, then you're already on a, a losing game. right? Um, so what does it take to actually, in the same way these other industries are doing very well, is, is actually define the new customer experience? And I think that's where financial services need to play and haven't done, you're absolutely right, in the past. So that's, that's for me, is the outstanding question. How do we do that? And how do we change cultures within organizations to make that possible? I'm not saying that you have to wait for the customer demands, but uh, I think we can predict better based on what is going on in the other industries, what customer expectations would be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. 
I think I think it's a fair point to say uh, don't presume what the customer actually knows. Don't definitely don't presume what you think they want. And actually, there's so many uh, organisations that don't take that personal preference out of the decision making, especially when it comes to very kind of creative elements like design of things. You know, you generally the amount of organisations that I've seen where a CEO is having critical decisions around what the design should be which just baffles me in terms of kind of where we're going, you know. And actually, the more you sort of rally against that, the better, because putting that in the hands of your customer is where that type of thing should be. But I think, you know, Jason, you've kind of alluded to this a number of times before, and I've seen this firsthand in terms of doing user testing. But if you ask customers what they actually think about where they are or the service that they're being provided, then if you don't know any better, it's very hard to, to say it's a bad thing, right? Yeah, I mean... With Starling and Monzo and the initial interviews around new current accounts and how people would interact with them, uh, if you ask people about their bank account, generally they they turn around and say, "Well, it's fine," you know. And you, you're really hoping that they hate their bank, you know. Come, come on, surely you must dislike it. Well, it provides me account. It does, you know, exactly what it says on the tin. Have you thought about changing? Well, not really. You know, where would I change to, and for what reason would I change? But then change that to. Let's talk about your financial life. Let's talk about if I was a a personal assistant, you know, your personal banker 24-7, what would I do for you? Then suddenly their eyes light up and they talk about their payday and getting, you know, down that glide path between paydays, dealing with recurring bills, dealing with all kinds of transactions. And for me, that turns what is a traditional, basic, digitized access to data and moving money very much more into financial services. And I do wonder if that's where we're heading back towards, you know, the, the original, you know, meaning of financial services were very much a service rather than a product-orientated culture. What do you think, Mark? No, I agree completely. I mean, it just comes back to the comment I made earlier about, you know, life advice and not just financial, but on every aspect of it. And I think ultimately, you know, don't know how many years from now, it could be very quick, it could take very long, but uh, we'll get there eventually. And that it become a service organization and we'll provide and see what the best products and services we can provide to our clients. But I also agree on the comment, you know, we sh- it's the client doesn't always know exactly what they want right now. I mean, most of the fintechs have come up with something brand new, you know, that nobody has ever thought of and they come out there and it's a great hit. You know, people love it. They love doing working with that way. I mean, Apple is a good organization on that. They come up with new things that nobody's ever thought of before, and it's a hit. It's not because they've gone out there and they figured out what the client was, because someone had a bright idea, brilliant, and pushed it through. And one could have come up with asking a lot of people, but if you had no idea about an iPhone that's smart and everything else, then you wouldn't know. So someone obviously has to make a first step. And I think in the financial space, there is a lot of things that can be done to move us into that direction. I think also there's something about the timing now as well, because we find ourselves um, where we can learn from those companies with increased custom demand. But we're also in a position where the regulatory challenges, you know, especially in Europe around PSD2, but I think globally, like regulation is the thing that keeps coming up as being a challenge. Um, we've got historically low interest rates across a lot of the world. And even in markets where it had been extremely high, they are now falling as well. Um, you know, How tough is transformation in times like that when the traditional revenue lines aren't performing? So there's not as much budget. So you've actually got to do more with less. Do you, do you feel that pressure, Ricardo, to do more with less? Oh, no, definitely. In, in banking, we all feel that, that pressure increasingly. And that, that's why digital 
is so so much in the, in the spotlight because it offers you quick access to, to this kind of tools that enable you with a, a fairly reduced and widely available means, a way to deliver on something. I guess we could be having this conversation in a variety of other industries through the ages. And I, everyone always brings up Kodak, Blockbuster, HMV, all of those large organizations that were probably on a podcast at some point or other on a radio show <laughs> talking about how this upstart Netflix is coming along, but we're going to do digital transformation and, you know, they don't stand a chance. Does that scenario play out for, for banks? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Amazon kind of took on the, initially the, the book industry. You never heard anything called book tech. <laughs> or, you know, you know, or camera tech, you know, yeah, we're talking about fintech. And, and the, the fact that that phrase exists gives us a chance because it, it exists because it's, banks have been around a long time and that we're in a, a longer phase. And fortunately for us, and we complain about regulation, but regulation has saved the banking industry. If there was no regulation, then we would be Kodaks. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think we should embrace and hug our regulators to that, in that regard. <laughs> So, so what are banks missing as an industry or financial services companies missing? I look to the tele telco industry and see what happened to them to answer your question about um, is there enough for moat. Um, you know, I think that the telco industry missed kind of the the value growth in their industry. So they had all the infrastructure, they had the, the kind of the, the the pipes in the ground. And you still need that infrastructure. But the value growth in that area was about the data that went through the pipes. And they missed that. And I think so. The banking could very much just become a bunch of, uh, or banks should become a, a bunch of uh, dumb balance sheets in the same way that the telcos become dumb pipes. So if we're not careful, all the value growth in our industry will come from the fintechs. So I think on one hand, definitely fintechs and etc. will be nibbling away at our revenues, uh, but more importantly, the growth of the industry will be taken by the fintechs rather than the banks, unless we move in a clever way. I think, I think that's the thing that's often missed from the, you know, the Kodaks and the Nokia stories. You know, it wasn't about not being good at what you were doing. It was failing to, to get that next step to kind of make that movement. And, and arguably, you know, Jason, again, you, you say this quite often, but the, you know, we haven't seen a digital bank yet. We've seen digitized banks. And actually, arguably, I'd say a lot of the fintech players that are coming through at this stage are, are still about faster horses. You know, it's a, it's a, an incremental step rather than actually using all of the qualities that we see in digital devices to fundamentally shift where the product sets actually are. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, products that have existed for ever, quite frankly, as far as financial services have been considered, really. And all we're seeing is a, a kind of an in incremental change in the distribution mechanism for those guys. Um, so I, th I think, you know, when we start getting to the, like the bank as a platform plays, the bank as a service plays in terms of the mix, that really feels to me like the future of, of where banking can go. Fintechs can be disruptive, right? But I don't think that the fintechs will be able to, you know, um, replace they can disrupt the banks or the financial service institution in a specific you know area in a niche identified area but i f don't think that they will replace where they even aim to replace you know uh, the banks or financial services oh, so don't get me wrong i'm not saying that banks will disappear so my point is that they will still be required in the same way we still require the telco in infrastructure but i think that just the growth the value growth and if you i'm sure that the financial industry as a whole, will be the boundaries of that will be continually redefined and expanding, and that that's that new space will be 
filled by fintechs rather than banks. I think, you know, any argument generally descends into uh, one of semantics, doesn't it? And I think, you know, fintech generally, you know, for me, I think fintech is a is a definition of an approach rather than necessarily a kind of a size of a, of a company. And actually the, or it can the be method, yeah, and I think the, the methods and the, the approach to solving the problem and almost the, you know, the, the acceptance that this is a journey that will never finish. Um, that for me is is what fintech really sort of brings to it, and whether that's you know fintech in a bank or whether it's fintech in a three person startup in a garage, yeah. it's actually the mentality of the people doing it that leads to me feeling like it's fintech. I think uh, it's all about collaboration, right, and working together as well with the fintechs. Uh, you know, we talk about the incubators, we talk about. Um, uh, basically launching a fintech, we have to admit also we are very regulated, right, in some markets. Fintechs are not regulated yet, right? So that's an advantage. They have flexibility. So why we don't work together? And this is why, you know, we have to do more and more and more rather than to basically reinvent the wheel, we'll create something because we want to be smarter where we don't, you know, believe in these guys. Let's work with the fintechs. So we've seen, a we work a lot with, with startup fintechs um, and we've seen a, a quite a dramatic change in, in their attitude towards banks. Um, three or f- to five years ago, Positive. they were all about attacking and killing banks. Now we're hearing, well, I think they figured out that banks have all the customers and a little bit more money. And they're a larger p- percentage of them, put it that way, are wanting to work with banks. You know, we just launched a, a, dig- a digital bank in India. Um, and inside that that product or the offering, there are the functionalities of three startup fintechs, you know, and which we couldn't have had such a, a good offering had it not been for, for that. You know, so I, I do think the future is, on one hand, there'll be still those fintechs who are, are wanting to attack, uh, but but I think the vast majority will be kind of, uh, as you're alluding to, uh, cooperating and working with banks. Yeah, but I guess where banks have traditionally been used to vertical competition, my bank versus your bank. The, the introduction of layers, both as bank as a platform plays like Solaris or bank as a service or marketplace banks that start to bring other fintechs together. It's interesting from that pipes perspective, especially in a PSD2 style world, to see an, a variety of markets opening up, some of which you want to dominate, some of which you want to compete, some of which there's a competition with fintechs, I guess. Is, uh, is PSD2 something, you know, you're looking at it over in Credit Suisse? And how do you think it will, will impact your business? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so on my personal side, on my side, I don't focus on that yet quite at this stage of the time. But yes, it will definitely have impact on the business. I think once that gets fully rolled out, you know, across the board, you know, that will have some impact in that, you know, data gets more shared and the client can move and hop, you know, their accounts from one bank account to another, whoever buys the best service, because the information will be readily available, well, depending on what the client wants, I suppose. And this gives a huge opportunity for people to get in between. So they don't have the whole banking platform and everything in the back end, but they can build nice front ends and everything else that come to it. That gives a whole different um, set of services that maybe the banks haven't been ready to roll out yet. So I think that could be an interesting scenario how that plays out in the future. Um, and that's something we should definitely take a look into. Is that not the, the worst of all worlds for a for a, an incumbent bank, that you do become that uh, telco behind the scenes, providing the balance sheet, <laughs> providing the ATMs, uh, but ultimately the customer relationship is owned by some either aggregator or fintech that brings together a variety of products? 
we already do that. So, I mean, the external um, asset managers, for example, they use the entire infrastructure, you know, of our uh, banking platform, including, you know, they basically sell our products and our services for us on behalf of the external asset managers. So it's kind of already happening. Mm-hmm. It's just on a different level. Now, on the fintech level, obviously, that'll just expedite that process. Yeah, banks aren't against white labeling in, in my experience when I worked at Barclays. The Barclays is one of the biggest providers to fintechs of bank account services and other services um, in, in Europe, I believe. Um, so I think there's something to be said about, so what's the right picture for a bank to look like in the future? Because you can kind of go in one of two directions. You can either become a platform that is more happy to be the balance sheet, but actually is the balance sheet for more people at lower cost. Or you're going to move towards being the aggregator of all of these different services with a brand. And actually, you've got your balance sheet, but actually, you don't mind if off-balance sheet stuff is happening. And I guess, which direction should banks move in? Do you you have a view on that, Paul? I do. And, uh, you know, so I actually call those type A and type B banks. Um, And certainly, at DBS, we want to be the the latter of the the two you described. But I think there's a, a... I think my prediction would be that the vast majority of banks will want to be type B, but will end up having to be type A, because I haven't, as I mentioned earlier, have not moved quickly enough to uh, to actually play in that space and they'll lose out. And by type A, you mean they become more of a platform? platform commodity play. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So I think there's a very traditional, we're at a fintech conference, and there's always a slide someone brings up about the unbundling of, of banking services. But something we've been seeing with a variety of clients we've been talking to is almost the rebundling of banking in a variety of different ways because end customers, whether they're businesses or individuals, don't want 20 apps on their phone in order to manage their view. How do you think, do you see that too? And, and how do you think rebundling of banking might might happen? I, I, so for me, I, I look at what's happening in China with, with WeChat and their walled garden strategy where you don't have to go out of WeChat to practically do anything in your life and how quickly that's grown and, and looking at the ambition of WeChat. And if I was to make a bold prediction about the future of most industries, including banking, is that what it's going to look like? You know, And how's that going to work under the covers? Well, that's just going to be a bunch of APIs on the smartest banks in, in town and their partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I think it will play out. I, I think for us, uh, and uh, I think you nailed it, it's very important for, for the customer basically to have you know, one point of entry, and I'm not talking only about using one app, but basically getting, you know, uh, several services, you know, bundled, right? And we are actually involved financial services doing quite a good job on, and we can do better, obviously, uh, using uh, the uh, digital opportunities in front of us. But I think by bundling many services and financing those, you know, products and services, we add value, right, to a point of sales. And uh, that I think, you know, one of the uh, differences that we can make uh, in regards with uh, our competition. I think we've been focusing on a lot of fintechs, you know, taking away business or helping us with business. I mean, the other side is going back to efficiency. We've had fintechs, you know, coming up with all kinds of tools and the best ways of us to become more efficient within the organization. So I, I would say fintechs has been helping at least what I've seen within Credit Suisse, you know, doing a lot of help with us to improve our efficiencies of our platform. You know, anything from, you know, straight through processing to the way we log or monitor or analytics to get more information to identify what's the best services we can provide. 
yeah, so I, fintech has been a very positive story as well on that side versus just worrying about them taking away the business. Well, definitely that dialogue's changed, hasn't it? You know, mm-hmm. to, your, to your point, actually, would you have been able to launch the bank in the speed that you could have done without fintech players? So, you know, arguably the people who lose out most these days are large incumbent suppliers who can't change what they do and change how they do it quick enough to keep pace with what their customer base want. Absolutely agree. Some of the, I mean, it's interesting to see how the big technology partners in particular are responding you know, to things like cloud and how their licensing strategies are evolving and, and how they're going positional. So I think you're right that uh, there's going to be a, a big shift in how banks and, and I'm sure other industries will engage in technology vendors. Certainly, you know, one of the, I oversee procurement at DBS as well, uh, and we've had to really rethink our processes about how we can work with with startups. Because mm. if we put our traditional bureaucratic checks and balances on a startup, we'll kill them. Yeah. Although they can never work with us. So we, we've got to rethink how we how we engage. Is there something as well about the same old consultancies recommending the same old vendors, which results in the same old thinking? <laughs> like like there's a there's a an invirtuous circle there, and and actually we that new generation, you know, procurement is responding to that in a lot of banks. I think um, management inside uh, financial services generally knows they need some of this fintech stuff. But it'd be kind of nice to have the big organisation that I can hit with those broad shoulders if something goes wrong. How do you balance? that tension um, from a procurement perspective so on our side we talk a lot to fintechs as well directly without having to talk to the consulting firms Mm -hmm. uh, first for that exact reason because if you go through the consulting company especially for example the big four you do tend to get the same answers back Mm -hmm. and if you go out there and you're open to you know people trying to contact you directly with their new ideas and initiatives you tend to, you know, find very different approaches that come out or people that are just coming out of the woodworks but haven't made a name for themselves. And they're the most interesting ones to to work with because they could uh, come up with some very interesting ideas. Obviously, there can be a lot of hit and misses, but, you know, there's always the one in between. It's, it, I guess it comes down to experimentation then, um, is what you're yeah. saying. If, if you're willing to invest a bit of time almost inefficiently in meeting with people that may be a waste of your time, but you may learn something from, then actually your take out of that is something that could really, really help you that you would never have discovered if you'd have gone through the same old processes the same yes. old way. It's a great point, and we've been struggling with it because you know we, I get personally I get inundated with requests. Can you meet me next Thursday for a cup <laughs> of coffee? And I, I must get you know two to three hundred a week of those kind of. So how do you filter those kind of things and then bring on the learning uh, as you're alluding to? We've had a couple of attempts to kind of do a. A dragon's den approach. So every, you know, we'll pick a theme, say payments, and say anybody who you have a day, half a day, and say you've got a seven-minute pitch to make, and we'll assess which are the most interesting, etc. But that didn't quite work either. You know, so if anybody has the answer to that question, I'd be very. Interested. Have you seen the program Britain's Got Talent? Um, <laughs> so I'm thinking Roadshow. Yeah. We'll get you guys in a room. We'll have a stage, a bit of an audience. And as people come on, they can start to give the pitch. You press the big red button, yeah. they're off. You know, I agree with you, Paul. I mean, this, this is overwhelming nowadays. It's like, uh, I have a great idea. I have a great product. You know, let's look at this. And hopefully, if we cannot cope with that today, what do you think about, you know, like uh, in a year from now or so? Uh, because if you look at the number of fintechs in one year, right? And maybe like you said, Paul, we just look in Europe where maybe US, Silicon Valley, but in China and other places as well in APAC, which are maybe more shy or humble, we're not as visible as, you know, the ones in Europe and in the US, 
then will be completely you know, sunk, I think, in a year from now. But I guess bringing it back to internal digital transformation, I did a little work with Rabobank, who run a moonshot program, where they actually go out to their, their staff and say, what great ideas do you have? And a, a small number of those are then turned into projects that those people are, are free to work on. Do you, do you have a, a vast number of people internally trying to pitch you ideas? And how is, how is that captured as a, as a way of, of delivering? Uh, so we've used uh, the concept of, I mean, hackathons, um, which I think are used by other organizations as well, where we use it to basically solve problems. So we have problems that go out there and uh, we give a whole bunch of teams the problem and then they work over a two-day, three-day period and there's a little prize at the end who's won the hackathon. And interesting enough, what comes out of there is people come up with really inventive ideas and there's a lot of teamwork that comes up into that and it's really out-of-the-box ideas as well. Um, you know, Some of them make it to production as well on top of that in a very short period of time. But yeah, the that's been a very great hit and going to continue with those. Usually my, my experience with hackathons is the, the most impressive thing that comes out of them is the ability to show people how much can be done in such a short period of time. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, the sort of traceability from an interesting idea to something that's working that I can yeah. stand up and show people that they can play around with is, is kind of phenomenal, really. And again, and that's, you know, putting internal pressures on, you know, IT departments and even the vendors that people work with, you know, demystifying what it takes to do some of this stuff and showing it's actually, it's actually easy. It's just people that make it hard. I completely agree with that. So at, at EBS, we gave up our, uh, our training budget of sending executives on fancy to fancy business schools and have started putting them through hackathon experiences. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you f take five days, you take these guys and you give them three days of kind of digital exposure. And then the final two days, you work with a, a, a real startup and a real problem. Uh, and the reason we do it is exactly your point, which is to give them the experience of what you can achieve in those two days. Yeah. And it's very funny. So you get the, the stodgy banker uh, meets the 22-year-old coder, and the stodgy banker says, uh, let me tell you how this is going to be. And then the 22-year-old <laughs> coder says, I don't think so. <laughs> and so you go through this storming, norming, performing cycle in about half an hour, uh, and then they're going to get on and do some real stuff, you know. And, that, and that for a lot of like an amazing kind of uh, reality TV thing as well. I was just about to <laughs> say, yeah, yeah. it's like the odd couple. You should broadcast <laughs> that because that would get millions of people watching. So on the hackathons, I mean, the most ones that we're talking about is more on the back end. It's, mm -hmm. it's more on the efficiency side or idea generation. Uh, but if we're talking about on the customer side, uh, what we currently did is not too long ago, we had a, with students coming in, various groups of students, and they came up with ideas of what they're going to work on. It's not necessarily a hackathon, but it's kind of they put a prototype together, which can be completely you know, just a front end. Um, one of the areas that uh, one of the teams worked on was, for example, robo-advisory. We wanted to know from a student's perspective of what they think a robo-advisory should look like. What's the flow? How does it impact the client? And in a matter of 11 days, you know, between about I don't know, 10 of them, they came up with this great workflow of how a robo-advisory should look like. You know, this is not talking about the engine in the background, but the front end. What would the client experience look like? And that was uh, most impressive, which kind of helped us to use it as a story that what we're going to look at is how can we bring that to the next level, actually productionize this you know, as a front end tool that we can bring to the clients or to the RMs or to the EAMs, etc. So that's basically how we would bring something forward like that. Um, smaller ideas that are more on the efficiency side, 
I mean, those will happen almost right out of the box. They You just put them straight into just, live, more or less. Yeah, you pretty just go much, through yeah. a process. If we see it, it's going to save us money and time, then they go in. That's, uh, we don't even stop to think about that. Yeah. Maybe to, to, to wrap this up, because there's, there's, I guess, one killer question that we've, we've seen come up a couple of times in terms of the stuff today is we've seen the Andreessen Harowitz quote come up a few times. So the, you know, the battle between every startup and incumbent comes down to whether the startup gets distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. So as a, I guess as a final question to you guys, who's going to get it first? Are the, the startup's going to get about how distribution works and be able to scale up in terms of where we're going with this? Or are actually all of the incumbent banks going to really sort of finally figure out where innovation truly lies? I think, as I mentioned earlier, that some banks will make it, but the majority will not. And on that bombshell, gentlemen, we're sitting between you and a conference dinner. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. That's all for now. See you next week. Bye. Bye.